you stand for the reading of God's Word. Our passage is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he led captives and captives in the train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended in this very one, who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The word of the Lord. God, you may be seated. You pray with me once more as we come to God's word. Let's pray together. Father, you truly are the creator and the provider and the very center of everything. As, as the Apostle Paul says, even in our passage, uh, you are over all, you are through all, you are in all. You're everywhere. There's nowhere that we can go to get away from you. And everything in creation is constantly pouring forth the revelation of you and the praise of your name. Lord, may we this morning join creation in our worship. Lord, would you open our hearts and open our ears to see you afresh this morning? Uh, would we hear your call as your people to be what you have called us to be? And that is your people, a family, a body. And Lord, I pray for those who are visiting who are just unsure of Jesus and unsure of um, maybe even your existence. Lord, I pray that this morning that you would come and you would reveal yourself to every person here this morning, that we would see your beauty and that we would be drawn to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, good morning, and we'll start our sermon with an introduction from the kids as we normally do. So I have a question for the kids. Um, you ready, kids? Do you have a body? 
Yes? Ever? Okay, we got a few bodies in here among kids. Uh, does your body grow? Yeah, we've got a few that grow. Okay, now here's the question for you to respond on. How do you know your body grows? When? How do you know your body grows? Your birthdays. Okay, that's pretty good. Yeah. So you know that you're getting older, so you assume that you're growing, right? Okay. By measuring up to your mom. There was a little boast in that, okay? Have you passed your mom yet? All right. That's all right. Yeah, he's got a little bit on his mom, he says. Um, anybody else? Yes, guys in the back. By sleeping? Okay, all right. Yes. What was it? Okay, measure up to size. So we hear some things there that, okay, great, last one. Oh, stage fright, locked up. It happens to me too. When you have on your clothes, okay, that's actually pretty good. So you notice that these clothes that used to fit don't fit anymore, right? I'm thinking that's where we're going with that. It's all about finding a way to make a connection there, you know? Sometimes it's harder than others. Um, so you know that you're growing, and usually the way you know you're growing is not literally by watching yourself. I hope nobody's growing that fast that you actually see your arms and legs getting getting bigger as you're sitting in your chair. That's not how you know that you grow. You know that you grow by noticing over time, hey, I'm a little bit bigger than I used to be. That's so often the way that change is. It's very gradual. Uh, So here's another question. What do you do to make your body grow? Are there any special techniques that you use? Any strategies to make your body get bigger? Seeing no hands. And no, of course not. It's kind of a silly question, right? There's nothing that you do to make your body grow. It's, it's a natural part of your body. As, as the body has what it needs, as it has food and water and clothing and shelter and time, you just grow. It, it's kind of, uh, it's, it's what the body does if it's healthy. It grows. It's very organic and natural. Now, here's another question. If you cut off a part of your body, will it grow? If you cut off, if I cut off my arm and I, you know, set it, you know, aside in my house, will my arm grow? Kids, you're still engaged here, okay? Why won't it grow? Why won't my arm grow if I cut it off? Judd. Because it's not attached anymore, right? It only grows as it's attached, right? Great, great tie in there. Exactly. This, this is a part of what Paul is trying to get at as he uses this metaphor of the human body to describe what the church is to be. He uses this metaphor in all kinds of different places. And really, the metaphor works in so many different ways for the church. You know, he says over and over and over that we are the body of Christ. And that's a, a phrase that we just tend to take for granted. But he, he uses that language in order to communicate so many realities about the church, about how we only grow as we're connected together, about how we grow uh, as we're connected together. 
Uh, we've been in a sermon series this fall where we're talking about the body of Christ, we're talking about the church, we're talking about our relationships with one another and community and, and all that we're called to uh, in community with one another in the church. Now, as we've noted over and over and over, this is uh, an area of great challenge for us because especially in our culture, we're conditioned to think of ourselves as individuals. We live in a very individualistic culture. We tend to think of life and ourselves uh, as individuals apart from other people. This is kind of how we're conditioned to think. We, we give more weight to who I am personally than we do to my connection to others, to a community, to a people. Now, that's a unique reality for Western cultures, and it's very deep in us, and it's hard to see. Um, but we also apply that. It, it, it begins to come in and shape even our spirituality, even our understanding of the Christian life. So we begin to think in our relationship with the Lord that our personal relationship with Him is far and away more important than our relationships with one another. As we come to the Christian life, we tend to view the church uh, just simply as a place that I go to get fed in my personal relationship with the Lord rather than as a vital part of what we're called to in relationship with Jesus. So that's, a, that's a big shift for us to make. And as we come to the Scriptures, we see over and over and over the Bible is speaking to us and saying and calling us to a certain kind of relationship with one another to be the church. And as he goes and describes this, we see so many ways in which it's changing our outlooks. As we come to our passage today, we again see this concept, this metaphor of the body, and, and all that Paul uses it to say in our life. So we're in Ephesians 4. Look there at Ephesians 4. And as we look at this particular passage here, it's helpful just to know just really quick uh, where this is at in the flow of the book of Ephesians. Now, the book of Ephesians is, uh, is very neatly laid out. The first three chapters and the second three chapters are different. In fact, they, they, uh, they flow to one another. The first three chapters is really focusing in on what God has done in Christ. So over and over and over in the first three chapters, he's focusing on what Jesus has accomplished, what He has done, and what that now means for your identity. Over and over and over, He's just looking at and, and exploring the gospel and its implications from every, uh, from every di different vantage point. In the second three chapters of Ephesians, it then moves into the practical application. Now, in light of what God has done, here's how you're to live. And that kind of formula there is actually at the heart of Christianity. That, that we are uh, saved, we are delivered, we are rescued by something that God has done, entirely a part of, from anything that we could ever do. And then that necessarily results in a different kind of life. Now, if you reverse that kind of formula, you move away from biblical Christianity. And we so often do. In fact, we're, we're inclined to do that, to think that, that I am accepted based upon what I do. That, that obe obedience and living a certain kind of life is what gets me acceptance before God. But even in the very structure of Ephesians, it's showing us the gospel. That God has done something. He has entirely accomplished your salvation. 
And as you embrace that, it then leads you to a certain kind of life. Obedience is always a response to what God has already done in our life. That is the gospel. And it's even mirrored in the structure of Ephesians itself. So as we begin chapter 4, Paul is going to begin to launch in for three chapters. Here's how you are to live. Let me lay out the kind of life that you're called to. And we notice something very different, uh, very unique in this call. The life that he calls us to is described here almost entirely in terms of our relationships with one another in the church. Look at what he says here, verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord then, now this is a major pivot point of the whole book. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Live up to what God has already done and called you to in your life. Now, what, what is the description of this life? Look at verse 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Did you notice something about each of those aspects of our call in relationship? They, they can only be obeyed in relationship with other people. You see that? You cannot maintain unity by yourself. Does that make sense? It's impossible. You can't say, go be one by yourself and apart from relationship with others. You can't do it. You can't go bear with others in love without relationship. It's not a personal command. The, the, the command to be patient assumes relationship because patience is worked out as you're living in committed relationship with other people that are driving you up the wall. That's what patience is. Apart from being wronged by another person, there's no need to offer patience. You can only be humble, you can only be gentle to another person, again, in relationship. You can't do these things on your own. They can only be lived out in relationship with other people. Now this, again, it's a... It's a a, a different way of thinking of the holy life. I think if you're anything like me, naturally, we tend to think of the holy life, as we think of the holy life, we think of things like my personal piety, like uh, my personal prayer and personal Bible reading. We think of our personal re- relationship with Jesus. I heard a teacher just a few weeks ago, he said, whenever we think of a spiritual life or a spiritual uh, experience, we think of someone sitting next to a lake, they have a journal and a Bible, you know, it's, it's a beautiful day, a gentle breeze, there's some ducks swimming along in the lake. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the contemplation, it's a getting away by yourself. That's the holy life, the devotional life. But what's interesting is as Paul talks about the holy life here, and literally for three chapters, it's almost exclusively in terms of how we treat See the shift that that means? It means that how I love another person, especially how I love someone who's driving me bananas, is at the very heart of holiness. That is what it means to follow him and to live a holy life. It's very much a shift. Now, the reason that he calls us to this, the reason that he calls us to these kind of relationships is rooted again in our identity. Look in verse 4 through 6, verses 4 through 6. 
Look at what he says here. There is one body and one spirit just as you were called to. One hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. You see, what he's saying is the reason that we are to be one, that we are to live in these kind of relationships is because we have been brought into a, uh, a relationship. We've been united to one another in Christ. That's actually what Jesus did. Jesus did not just come and in his work on the cross just reconcile us to God. He certainly did that. But he also reconciled us to one another. The heart of the devastation of sin in the world is that it's taken all that God meant to be together, creation, people, people in God, and it blew it all apart. That's essentially what sin did. It created division. It it blew everything to smithereens. But you see, the work of Jesus on the cross brings all those things together. And so unity is the work of Christ bringing us together as one. In fact, he uses the word for one seven times in three verses here. What's he trying to get across? In the very heart of our lives and what Jesus has accomplished in us is unity. Unity with God. Unity with one another in his body. And for the rest of the passage, he begins to move into this metaphor of the body. Using the image of the of a human body to communicate what we are to be in the church. And now as we saw this, you remember a few weeks ago, we looked at 1 Corinthians 12. The whole chapter is about this same reality, where he's kind of looking at the human body and saying, this is what the church is to be like. And of course, what he's communicating, and we're talking about this a lot, by the human body is that there is a connectedness and a unity in the human body. And that's exactly what the church is to be. It's got a lot of different parts. Our bodies have different parts. They have eyes and ears and arms and legs, all kinds of different parts, but they only work as they're united together. As Judd was saying, you cut one off, it can't grow because it can only grow as it's connected to all the other parts. And in fact, the way that the body functions as all of these parts are connected together and serve one another, and do their part, the body is built up. That is what he's communicating about this image of the body. There's also this sense of growth. Uh, Growth is a very natural aspect of a body because it's alive, it's organic, it grows. But what does growth look like in the church according to the passage? Look again at verse 12. He says, so that the body of Christ may be built up. He talks actually throughout the passage about this growth in the body of Christ, this growth in the church. Now, what does this growth look like? It's not just numerical growth, though it is. That's definitely a part of it. But as you look at how he describes the goal of that growth and what that growth looks like, it's more depth than it is width. Did you notice that? Look again at verse 12. So that the body of Christ may be built up. Look in verse 13. How does he describe the goal of the growth? Until we all reach unity in the faith. So the idea here is that that, uh, growth in the church is a growing in our faith, growing in our understanding of who God is, what he's done, uh, growing in our trust and dependence upon him. But again, not just individually. 
growing in unity of our faith. Did you see that? Also, unity in our knowledge of, of the Son of God. Um, this, uh, whenever the Bible uses the concept of knowledge, it's not just talking about understanding something in your head. The biblical word for knowledge is more of the sense of uh, relational knowledge, like intimacy. Uh, the knowledge that's used of husband and wife knowing one another deeply in relationship. But again, it's a, not just a growing in our knowledge of Jesus individually, but rather growing in our unity of knowing Jesus. You see, the goal for our growth is not just some of us coming to grow and understand Him more, but rather all together as one, growing into our knowledge and intimacy with Jesus. It's not enough for a few to grow into that. But the goal is that all together we come to intimately know Jesus. And then finally, as he describes it, as maturity. Become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. The goal for our growth is growing into the fullness of the image of Jesus. What that means is that Together, as we grow, we come to look more and more like Jesus. It's Christ-likeness. We, we live like Jesus. We more and more love like Jesus. Uh, we have at the very center of our being the Father. That, that our love for Him and our trust in Him would be at the very heart of all that we do. That's who Jesus was. Complete devotion to the Father. So as we grow together... And mature in Christ, that's what it looks like. That together as a church, more and more and more, the Father is at the center of our life. That we look like Jesus. That as people see us as a church, they're literally seeing a picture, a living, walking, breathing picture of Jesus himself. That's the idea of the body of Christ. But there's, there's one other thing to see here, and that is the how. How do we grow in this way? So we've seen that growth is primarily this depth together. How does it happen? What is the strategies and techniques to get us to this place of growth? Not what we might imagine. Look again at verse 12, or actually verse 11. As he begins to talk about how Jesus has given to the church certain leaders with certain capacities and gifts. It was he who gave to some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, which were kind of special offices in the early church that, that provided the foundation of the church. But then he says, and some to be pastors and teachers, which are the more ordinary leaders of the local church. But look at what he says in verse 12. All of those people are not to build the church. Those Special offices, those who are called to be teachers, are not to build or grow the church. Verse 12, their role is to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. How is the body of Christ built up? As God's people do the work of ministry. It's very different than what we would think. All together, as, as everyone engages in personal ministry, using their particular gift, the church is built up together. How does this specifically look? Look down to verse 15. 
speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. How do we grow up in Christ as a church? Again, as every member speaks the truth in love in relationship with one another. As each member speaks the truth, where's the truth? It's God's word. As each member speaks the gospel, the truth of the gospel into one another's life in love, the church is built up. And then in verse 16, from him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament, again, this image of the body, grows and builds itself up in love. How? As each part does its work. How do we grow? How does the church grow? Not as pastors or great communicators or strategists or any of these things build everybody up. No. It is as each member, each part of the body does its work. Paul is introducing a concept found throughout Scripture here. And it is the concept of the personal ministry of every member of the body of Christ. It's the fact that that everyone, that if you are a follower of Jesus, that you are called to engage in personal ministry with one another in the church. And that God is at work in that as we engage in those relationships. Those are the places that God is at work to build up the church. Not the pastor. Not, not the, the, the slick leader that makes everyone grow. That's not how God chooses to do it, but rather as each part serves and ministers to one another. If you're a follower of Jesus, here's what the Bible says is true of you. You have been given the Holy Spirit. The only one who can actually change anybody lives in each one of you. And through Him, you have been given certain gifts and abilities, certain spiritual gifts. And your part is to use those gifts in dependence upon the Holy Spirit to serve one another in love. And as you become an instrument in God's hand, an an instrument of ministry to one another in the church, God builds up His church. That's how the church grows. Again, not as the pastor does all the work, but as each member of the body of Christ does its work. It's not a sophisticated technique or ability. It is as we love one another, speaking the truth in love. Uh, Paul Tripp, uh, an author that I like to read a lot, he's been a pastor for a number of years, and he tells a story in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. He tells a story about uh, his church and a man in his church named Sam. Now, Sam was a wonderful part of his church. He was... A very faithful man, faithful to his family, and and, uh, worked a a regular nine-to-five. And one day, uh, at the end of a long day, he's headed home for the day, and he runs into somebody who is very broken. He he happens into a man uh, whose life has literally fallen apart. Uh, This man has lost his job. He's gotten into a fight with his wife. He's been kicked out of his home. He has nowhere to go. Sam knows right off this is not a seasoned street person. This guy's in a desperate situation. So Sam responds in the moment. He brings the guy home into his house, and he calls up Paul, the pastor. He says, hey, Paul, listen, I met this guy today. He's in uh, in tremendous need. 
I brought him home, and I, uh, I just figured I'd give you a call and let you know that you can come and get him and provide ministry for this man because he really needs help, right? And so Paul in that moment did a very courageous thing that most pastors would not do, myself included. He says, Sam, isn't God so good? You know, he never makes mistakes. And we know that there's no accident that he's put this man into your path. And how much would he love this man to put you, a follower of Jesus, in his path in order that he might use you to care for this man and to restore this man. And how wonderful that God uses people like you and me in his life. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pray for you that God would help you and equip you in every way that you need to care for this man. And, and, and Sam tries to interrupt him, but, but I can't, I, I'm not able. And he says, Sam, I'm going to pray for you tonight and I will call you in the morning. And he hung up the phone. And what he said is what he got to see in Sam's life, that Sam, feeling completely inadequate, for the next number of weeks and months, began to minister to this man, and Sam began to be used in all of his inadequacy in a way that he never could have imagined. Can you relate to Sam? Can you relate to this sense of like, what do I have to offer? I'm barely getting by myself. If someone really is in need in my life, what they need is a professional. They need professional help, right? So let's call up the professional to bring the help that they need into their life. You have this sense of like, I'm totally inadequate. I don't know what to say. Do you understand that that is the very thing that God loves to use in ministry? This sense of inadequacy. This sense that like, this is all wrong. I don't know what to say. What can I do here? Those are the very places that God most loves to show up. Here's why. Because it's clear that it's all him and not you. I know this in my own ministry. So many times whenever I'm like, I'm, I'm feeling like, oh, the words are just flowing and I'm saying it just right and nothing happens. But then other times whenever I'm blowing it, you know, I don't know what to say. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is totally not helpful. You know, those are the times that usually I see God work in somebody's life. How he works. And it is our dependence upon Him and the Holy Spirit that God chooses to use in ministry to one another. See, as Paul shows us here, the body of Christ grows as each member in love, in dependence upon the Holy Spirit, speaks the truth in love to one another and uses their gift to build up the church. That is His ordained method of growth. Not how we would pick it, So finally, let me close with this. Ultimately, what drives us in ministry, because it's scary. It's scary to think about stepping out and opening up myself to someone else or entering into somebody else's brokenness. That's scary, and it's hard. And you know what? It's a terrible inconvenience in our lives. We all have busy lives. We have lots going on to think about getting involved in ministry in in all of its messiness is a threat to our life, to our, the control that we have over our life. What is going to compel us out into these scary places of ministry? Well, only the gospel, right? Only the gospel, only resting and rediscovering the riches of what God has done for us in Christ, only 
meditating upon that and seeing that afresh compels us out in ministry. Paul does this over and over and over as he gives a command or he calls us to something. He uses the gospel right there to motivate us for it. He does it one chapter over in chapter 5, verse 1. Listen to what he says. Live a life of love. That's a great just summary of what he's just told us in chapter 4. Live a life of love. But what drives that? What motivates that? Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You see what he did there? Paul said, I want you to live a life of love. But here's what will drive that. Remember, remember what Christ has done for you. He has loved you. And as he describes in in chapter 3, the love of Christ is beyond understanding. He says, I pray for you that you will understand what is the height and the width and the depth and the length of the love of Christ, that you would know this love that surpasses knowledge. He prays that we would know the depths of Christ's love that can never be fully known. Because as we come to understand more deeply His love for us, His prior love for us, in spite of all that we've done, it begins to move us out. It begins to loosen your grip on control in your life. It begins to turn you outward from yourself and compel you towards other people. And where do we see Christ's love most clearly? It is in the fact that He gave Himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to the Father. He sacrificed His very own body that we might know life and union with the Father. You see, that's not just something that gets you into the Christian life. That's not just the ABCs of the Christian life. It's the A to Z. It's not just how we enter. It's how we grow with a continual, daily repenting and believing afresh in the riches of the gospel. And as your heart begins to marvel at all that Christ has done for you and how he's rescued you and how secure you are in him, it motivates a life of ministry towards other people energizes you to begin to move into those messy and scary places called another person's life. Only as your heart is moved by Christ's love.